When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Hey, it's never too early to think about a Father's Day gift or just a gift to the guy in your life who hits the gym as much as I do. So let me say thanks to our fitness and training apparel sponsor, 10,000. 10,000 is a direct-to-consumer company, no middleman, so you get premium fabrics, trims, and techniques that other brands simply can't afford. Go to 10,000.cc slash frank to receive 15% off your purchase. Now back to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. We have been suffering from Russia for three centuries. It's a totally corrupt, morally bankrupt society. And this is the biggest nuclear power station in Europe. Seemingly had no idea of the risk they were exposing their bodies to. With guns pointed to their heads. In my FBI days, we would call that a clue. What we're dealing with right now is an existential threat. I can see parties coming together here in the United States to support Ukraine. Like 98% of Ukrainians today say that Russia is our enemy. pales in comparison when you're trying to survive. This is, after all, not just Ukraine's fight against Putin. This is a democracy fight against Putin. Inna Sofsen is actively serving as a member of Ukraine's parliament, where she sits on the Committee on Energy, Housing, and Utilities. Previously, she was Ukraine's Deputy Minister of Education and Science, and she served as Vice President of the Kiev School of Economics. She's been a full professor of political science at National University's Kiev Molya Academy. Inna spent a year studying education policy as a Fulbright Scholar at UC Berkeley. From her apartment in Kiev, Ukraine, Member of Parliament Inna Sufsen joins us to share the latest ground truth from the war and to express the horrors and the hopes in the battle for Ukraine. A caution for our listeners, this discussion includes a brief reference to the rape of a child by a Russian soldier. Inna Sovsen is our guest this episode, and I'm so honored to have a member of Ukraine's parliament with us. With all that's going on, I I have to be honest, I didn't know if Inna would be able to join us today, but she's here, she's with us, so let's make best use of, of her time and get right into it. Inna, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Uh, tell our listeners where you're joining us from and what things are sounding and looking like right now as we record this. Well, I'm uh, at my home in Kiev. That's where uh, I have been for the last couple of weeks, not during the whole time of the invasion, because the first couple of weeks I was living with some friends a bit south uh, in the city, because my home is in the very north of the city, and that is where the Russians were coming from, so it wasn't very safe at my place. But the last uh, three weeks, I think I've been staying here at my place, uh, ever since Ukrainian army started regaining control of uh, Kyiv region, uh, and it became a bit safer here. Uh, I'm staying at my place, apart from some days that I go to the western Ukraine to visit my son, who has been there from day one of the invasion. And uh, uh, I am here. It's it's uh, much better now compared to what it used to be two weeks ago. Of course, because we are not having Russians, uh, you know, 20 kilometers from my home right now. 
but we still get an air raid alerts every day. Sometimes uh, two, sometimes five, sometimes they last half an hour, sometimes they last three hours. You never know how long that will be. And uh, whenever you hear this this sound, uh, on, we all have this, those apps on our phones, uh, which start blaring uh, whenever there is an air raid alert. Uh, people uh, understand that this means that the Russians have uh, uh, set a missile targeting our city. And whether Ukrainian defense system will be able to catch that one or not, we never know. So that is how it feels to be in Kiev right now. Yeah, I actually can't imagine living with that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that kind of wonder of whether or not it's going to happen today, whether or not you'll be safe today. Do, do you, can I ask you what the impact has been on your immediate family, extended family, friends, in terms of casualties, injuries? Have you... I, I I don't want to get into anything that's going to traumatize, but I, I also think our listeners need to know what what the average Ukrainian is experiencing in terms of loss these days. Well, except for loss of sleep, I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm the lucky one because loss of sleep is terrifying. I've never had any problems with sleeping. I do have those now. But then, uh, you know, the, the emotionally, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, well, two major factors for myself, apart from the very fact that we are at war, is my son living apart from me, and also my boyfriend who is with the army and he is on the east right now. So I worry day and night about him. Like I try to text him regularly when he's not responding within like an hour, I start to, well, let's say worrying, to put it mildly. But then I was worried for my parents as well. My, uh, my parents live in Kiev region. And uh, the Russians have actually been very close to the village where my parents lived. And my mom got evacuated, but uh, my dad got back to the village and he was there for, for a couple of weeks before he also left. And then he you know, started helping people to evacuate from there. But my parents' home has actually been uh, damaged, uh, even though the Russians were not in the village, um, but because there were battles around. Uh, the shrapnel uh, damaged the windows. So I think uh, now I have to fix about 10 windows at my parents' place. Mm. But other than that, I don't, I'm one of the lucky ones, right? Because uh, no one from my immediate family suffered, you know, direct, uh, you know, damage, uh, apart from the damage to the house, which, which is, again, is not as bad. I was actually talking to my mom. I said, like, how do you feel about that? And she said, like, I'm trying to understand how I feel about that. Because on the one hand, I've seen uh, people's houses completely burned down. And we are lucky ones, our home is standing. But still, it feels like our lives have been violated by some force that just came from outside and just, you know, changed the course of our lives. I think that is how we all are feeling. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a violation on so many levels, personal um, uh, housing, life, sleep, but but on a grander scale, of course, this is a violation of, of, of our humanity, of of our freedoms, of our democracy. And we're, I mean, here in the United States, I want you to know, most of us are seeing this as a violation of freedom and democracy for all who support freedom and, and democracy. And, and you have tremendous support here in the United States. I want to, I, I, I want to start by asking how, uh, as a young child, you saw your life maybe playing out and how, and how that path may have differed from what you thought and, and how, a, how a university professor becomes a member of parliament? Um, you know what, that's, that's an interesting question, like how I saw my life uh, as a child. And I would actually say that this is pretty much what I saw as a child for myself when I grew up. Because um, I grew up in Kharkiv, which is the second biggest city in Ukraine, which again, unfortunately, is very much on the news right now because the Russians are shelling it constantly and destroying particularly one area in the city so badly. It pains me to see what they're doing to my native city. But Kharkiv is on the east of Ukraine. It's a big city, it's two million people. And it is to a very big extent, a Russian speaking city. So many people over there would be speaking Russian and Russian would be a language which people are using on the streets, particularly in the nineties. Because Ukrainian language had always been, you know, uh, Russians were always saying that this is like the rural language. So if you speak Ukrainian, you are somehow second rate citizen. And I grew up in a Ukrainian speaking family. So from the very early days, like from the kindergarten, I could see how politics are influencing people's lives. So it made me wonder, like, 
why are those kids treating me badly? Just because I, I'm just like them, right? I, you know, we wear the same clothes, we are the same age, like, like, there is no difference among us, except for the fact that I speak Ukrainian at home. I was not even allowed to speak Ukrainian in the kindergarten because I went to the kindergarten during the Soviet times. Uh, but they treated me differently just for the mere fact that I was speaking Ukrainian. And there were several other kids like that in, the, in, in our group in the kindergarten as well. So that got me into this thinking about the, the way how politics influence uh, individuals' lives from the very early period of time. Like, seriously, it was a big issue because of this, this language and then this, my, my family situation, Ukrainian-speaking family in, in a largely Russian-speaking Kharkiv. So I think I got um, interested in politics very early on. And uh, I was working hard to, uh, to, to study that in the university. And I was uh, getting to, I was graduating high school in 2001. And uh, at that time, it was a very difficult, it was a big issue of uh, university admissions in Ukraine was corruption. That was extremely corrupt. And uh, my parents didn't have any money. And I said that I don't want them to bribe uh, out my way into the university. I was literally studying like, like day and night to get into one single university, which was proud to say that we are absolutely corruption free university. The University of Kiev Mohila Academy, uh, which was, um, I'm, I'm very grateful I, I, I got there. I literally studied very hard to get there. The, the competition was immense, uh, but I got into that university and moved to, to Kiev in 2001 uh, to study political science. Then I went to study to Sweden. I did my master's in Sweden at Lund University. And then I got back to Ukraine and I started working in the non-governmental organization uh, with education policy analysis. Uh, and that is how I got in 2014, skipping several stages in my life. But that is why in 2014, uh, after the revolution of dignity, there was a new minister of education who was appointed and he invited me to join his team as the first deputy minister of education and science responsible mm -hmm. for higher education in Ukraine. So, so that was uh, like very long way uh, to politics, yes. like from, from studying yes. political science teaching political science. I started teaching around 2011, I think. And mm. uh, then to uh, the well, policy first as the, at the ministry. And then I got back to academia for a couple of years, uh, went to Berkeley uh, as a Fulbright scholar in 2018-19. Did you say UC Berkeley? Yeah, yeah. I was at Berkeley for uh, one year as a, as okay. a Fulbright scholar. Uh, and actually, okay. uh, like uh, three days after I got back from Berkeley, the newly elected president Zelensky dissolved the parliament and announced new parliamentary elections. So one week after I got back from Berkeley, I was invited uh, to join a party and to run for elections. That's wow. uh, well, in a nutshell. A couple, a couple of yeah. Thanks for sharing that. A couple of of observations. First, I find it interesting that you have a ministry of education and science. That those two disciplines have been grouped together. And I can I can tell you in the United States we could have used that during the during, we could use that right now because it seems it seems we've lost touch with science in terms of education uh, for for many people here. But I find but we that, do have our that, issues as well. We do have our yes, issues with that as I, well. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm I'm sure. Um, and then I'd like you, you mentioned your party. I most Americans are and myself included are completely unfamiliar with the with the parties in uh, in Ukraine. Tell us about your party and what it stands for. So uh, our party is called Holos in Ukrainian, which is translated into Voice, and it was called Voice. I mean, it sounds nice politically to give voice to the people. But there was also a more pragmatic reason to that, because uh, our party was founded by a very famous singer. So, yes, we either have comedians or singers running for elections here in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, that's, but, a, that's, uh, that's OK. We've we've had reality television show uh, hosts run for president and win here. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that. Um, mm. So we were. Uh, yeah. So, so Svetoslava Karchuk is the name of the founder. Uh, he has always been uh, like. Truth be told, my favorite singer since high school. Like I was always such a fan. I was like, oh my God, this is such a cool you know, band. I was going to all their concerts in Kharkiv whenever I couldn't Kiev anywhere. And then suddenly I'm having a meeting with this person whom I have heard about for 20 years of my life. And I'm sitting across the table from him. And he says like, oh, I've heard great things about you, um, that you can be a great addition to the party that we are building. And I just can't believe that because it's like, I don't know, well, 
give a name of a star that you always wanted to meet and that suddenly he wants to meet you and then propose something to you. Just imagine that. That is how it happened. And uh, uh, 2019 elections were very interesting in Ukraine because um, those were elections five years after the re revolution of dignity. But those were the elections which truly changed the political landscape. Because 80% of the MPs in the parliament were people who have never been in parliament before. And that was well mainly because of the president's party, Slan um, Rodov, servant of the people, uh, but also us, because we were formed as the uh, liberal party that is very much against corruption, uh, that is pro-market uh, whenever markets work. We also understand market value and all of that. Uh, we are liberal in terms of uh, social values. So uh, yeah, I'm proud to be called the most LGBT-friendly member of parliament uh, in Ukraine. Um, also, you know, openly feminist, as I say it, um, and all of that. Uh, so, so socially liberal, economically liberal as well. But you know, with all understanding of the failures of the markets, but also where markets should work or not. We are the smallest party in the parliament. Well, I wish we were bigger, but uh, you know, it takes time. Uh, how many parties are represented in parliament, and how many members of parliament are there? So we are supposed to have 450 members of parliament. That is the full composition. But uh, since 2014, we are not have been members representing Crimea and parts of Donbass. So we actually have uh, 426 members of parliament and uh, five political parties. And also you have to realize, unlike the United States, where you have your uh, members uh, uh, represented individual constituencies, in Ukraine, it's a different system. We do have a mixed system where half of our MPs are elected on party lists. So people are just voting for the political party and then there is a list of people and they're ranked in certain numbers. So, so you get to like this number of votes that translates into this number of seats. That is like, like you get 15 seats. So the first 15 people in the list get into the parliament. That is how I was elected. I was not elected from the constituency, but from the party list. And half of the MPs are representing individual constituencies. So we have 20 people in the parliament altogether, which is, again, not a lot. We had the support of about 6% of the population. And uh, we have uh, 17 people who were elected on party lists and three are representing constituencies in the Western Ukraine. So we are this very pro-Western, anti-corruption, uh, liberal party, uh, which is very like pro-reform and uh, yeah, sure. very progressive. Sure. That's very helpful. I think that, that helped to put this in context. Let me take one minute to tell you about the latest advances in cybersecurity. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. I'm all about security, and today security is online security. It's your online security. And here's why I choose Avast for my online security. Its antivirus is award-winning. It stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. It has PC speed-up, which optimizes the background activity of your apps in order to speed up your PC. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. With Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now, back to our guest. And so, speaking of Parliament, in this horrible time, have you, has Parliament been able to communicate with each other, members communicating? Have you held sessions? What, what's that looking like today? We are, actually, always, uh, like all the time. Basically, every week we are having sessions. Because typically our schedule looks like this. We would be having one week, we are having plenary session. Then one week we are working with uh, in the committee, in the constituency, with different groups, developing legislation and so on and so forth. That was our regular schedule, like like two weeks, so one week plenary, one non-plenary. This has all changed, of course, February 24th, 
We did have our first emergency session meeting at seven in the morning on the, the beginning because the, the invasion started at four in the morning. At seven, we were in the parliament. Let's put this, it was very tense being there in the parliament, uh, hearing all the explosions uh, over Kyiv and not knowing if Putin would try to target the parliament building. But we had to go there to declare martial law and also to make some other small changes to legislation, but mainly the martial law. And after that, we have been gathering um, almost every week for very short sessions. We are not having any debates in the parliament. We are having preliminary informal consultations on the legislation that we are to discuss. And then once everyone agrees upon that, we are getting to the parliament and we just vote very quickly so that we do not spend too long a period of time in the parliament. We are not announcing the sessions in advance. We are not allowed to talk about the sessions two hours after it um, it uh, ended because people are still in the building, like like uh, the speaker and, and many other people who have different functions in the in the parliament. Mm. Yeah, so that is the way we have been working. And actually, absolute majority of MPs are coming to those emergency sessions. I think three hundred seventy six, three hundred sixty is the number of people who are coming. So so basically, everyone except for about 20 MPs of a pro-Russian political party that have fled the country. So, yes. uh, and then some people are just, you know, people get, get sick or go with delegation abroad or something like that. But other than that, people yes. are coming to the sessions all the time. Yeah. Do you also, as a member of parliament, receive regular military updates on the status of, of the fighting and uh, progress uh, in the war? Or how, how, do you stay, how do you stay informed on that? Well, I would say that we do get, get some insights, but not so much through official channels, because we also realize that, you know, the military command needs to be doing exactly this, commanding militarily. This is their job. Uh, because apart from working in, in the plenary sessions, all MPs are also doing many other types of work. Like many are organizing humanitarian aid. We do have two of our MPs in our party, making it 10% of the party, who are directly fighting in the army. Uh, we do have uh, people who are, you know, from Eastern uh, regions and these from Eastern regions, they know what is happening there. So, you know, because we are involved in so many networks, uh, we get different pieces of information from here and there just because of, of the things we are doing. So, so that is how yeah. we get more information. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense to me, even from a secure communication security standpoint, you don't yeah. want a lot of official, official comms going out that can be intercepted and by the enemy. So... I understand that. How, how about in, in the U.S. Congress, uh, the House and the Senate, we have uh, various committees that, that members sit on. They might sit on the Armed mm -hmm. Forces Committee or the Intelligence Committee or, or uh, Education. What, what, what uh, Do you have a similar thing? And, and do you sit yeah. on specialized committees? Of course. Yeah, we all have to be, uh, well, we don't have to, but we have the right to be assigned to a committee. And I think almost all, except for a couple of uh, MPs uh, who, are not, who have not joined the committees for technical reasons, but all the other MPs are members of the committees. We can only serve in one committee. I think that is different from your Congress. I think in your Congress, you can serve in, in several. Yes, I think that, that's actually smart. We should actually promote that in Ukraine's um, uh, parliament as well. Because I was at the beginning, given my background, I was serving in the education committee. But then nine months after working there, I actually changed committees and I'm now serving in the energy committee. Energy. Which was a big change for me which happened for many, many reasons, which we don't have time to, to explore here. Uh, sure. But I would say this, that I, I didn't give up on education policy, uh, but I added some additional uh, things to my portfolio, namely the, the energy issues, uh, which are crucially important for many reasons for Ukraine, because uh, energy is, is one of the uh, mechanisms how Russia is threatening Ukrainian security. So that is a security issue for us. Uh, second, of course, with the climate change and all, uh, this is, again, a big threat, and then we need to be addressing that as well. Not as urgent right now for, for us, but still, it's, it's, it's a big issue. And uh, I wanted to explore it more. That's why I joined uh, Energy Committee about two, two years ago. Yeah, something like that. Yep, there's a lot to learn there. Does energy include your nuclear power? Yeah, yes. Yeah, and so, and so the, the world watched very anxiously as we saw a gun battle in Chernobyl and a fire what what's the latest on security around Chernobyl or any other nuclear power facilities and what what do you think 
What do you think happened uh, with regard to the battle there at, at Chernobyl? And and reports now that Russian soldiers seemingly had no idea of the risk they were exposing yeah. their bodies to with regard to radiation. What what can you tell us about that? Uh, truly, they captured Chernobyl, uh, which is about 100 kilometers north of Kiev. So it's it's really like one and a half hours drive. Uh, we took a visit there recently, and it's it's really close from Kiev, right? It's in the north, uh, very close to Belarusian border. And they have captured Chernobyl the first day of the full-scale invasion. So uh, we even like at that time we were still not fully understanding what is happening. You know, we are still getting used to the sounds of of the air raid alerts and bombs exploding, and suddenly we hear that they have captured Chernobyl, which sounds just terrifying. Of course, Chernobyl power, uh, nuclear power plant station is not functioning station, but it is holding uh, sto- it's it's a storage place for nuclear waste. And of course, it has all the sarcophag. Is that the English word? Like the cover for for the for the old station, and uh, um, so so them being there seemed extremely dangerous. They have also captured uh, um, a few hundred people who were working at the station at the time, and the people who were working there had to continue working for over a month under Russian guns, but they had to continue operating the station. And I just, I was thinking about that, like, oh my God, this must be so scary because they can't leave. They have to stay there and they have, they are being forced to work in the nuclear power station with guns pointed to their heads. They're the true heroes, like as much as the military men and women are, because they are, you know, what they did was amazing. They continued working there. But the Russian soldiers have actually captured large part of the territory because Chernobyl is, is a power station, but there is this large territory around, which is uh, the area where people are not allowed to leave for, you know, after the explosion. And uh, it's uh, like a protected area, so you cannot simply go in there. There is a huge fence around it and all of that. So, so you cannot easily get into that territory. Uh, but they have been stationed there and uh, they did some very stupid things, which just exemplify uh, to what extent Russian army has been prepared for this invasion overall. For instance, they started to dig in in the area, which is called the Red Forest. Uh, it's called the Red Forest for a reason, because of the radiation levels. The streets there are literally like orange and red. And anyone who has been to a Chernobyl, who has read anything about Chernobyl, knows about that Red Forest. Even if you don't, you go there and you see red trees. That should be a sign that something is wrong with That's, that place. Yeah, right? in, 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 my, in my FBI days, we would call that a clue. Yes, a very, very clear clue. You know, like yes. my nine-year-old son would have understood that, yes. right? That, that that something is wrong there. But they were actually digging holes from there. So, so they were breathing in the air and, and um, I call it, the, the particles from the ground, which were much more contaminated than the air itself. So we do know now that uh, hundreds of them have suffered. And I think a few thousand were, of them were actually stationed in Chernobyl. And they have been moved to hospitals in Belarus. Uh, and uh, well, now they are slowly dying, or not so slowly. You know, you, uh, one, of, when, when, one important issue is that everyone speaks about Chernobyl uh, for obvious reasons. Everyone knows Chernobyl, but they're gone from Chernobyl right now. Uh, ridiculous part of the story is that when they were leaving, they asked the Ukrainians in the station to sign a paper that they are getting the station back, which made no sense. It just as ridiculous as you can get, but they, they actually signed this letter, like we are returning the station to the Ukrainians, signature of the Russian forces, signature of the Ukrainian administrator of, this, of the plant. So like, this is the most nonsensical event of, of this war. Yeah, we, we came, we screwed it up, we radiated ourselves, and now we just now want we an leave. official official record that it's your problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. But, but Chernobyl is, is, of course, known all around the world, but they're still keeping the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. And this is the biggest nuclear power station in Europe. It's huge. In, in the southern Ukraine, it's very big, and they're still holding that one. So everyone speaks about Chernobyl, but they forget about the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, which is still under their control. Okay, and still and still an active supply of power, correct? It, it is. It is, yes. 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 Yeah. Okay, so they, they want that. Hey, let me tell you about our new fitness and training apparel sponsor, 10,000. Fitness has been a part of my daily life since my days at the FBI Academy. And during today's leg workout, I was wearing 10,000. 
Their tactical short is the ultimate combination of durability, mobility, and versatility. It was developed and tested with over 50 special ops members who put it to the test by rucking, swimming, lifting, and just all around beating it up, producing the holy grail of tough workout shorts. Their lightweight shirt is the perfect summer shirt, extremely lightweight, breathable, and quick drying. 10,000 makes the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable training shorts I have ever worn. When I'm weightlifting or hitting the treadmill, the tactical shorts not only stand up to the challenge, but help me perform. I never have to worry about my phone popping out of an open hip pocket. They seamlessly transition from land to water. 10,000 is a direct-to-consumer company, so there's no middleman. You get premium fabrics, trims, and techniques that other brands simply can't afford. There's free shipping and returns, and check it out, a lifetime guarantee. 10,000 is offering you 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc slash frank to receive 15% off your purchase. That's 10,000.cc slash frank. You know, you, we mentioned the, the soldiers, the Russian soldiers, who seem to have no idea what they were doing to themselves and, and their bodies and ultimately will suffer severe, severe health consequences. And I can't help but, but see that as a, sim, a symbol, a real living symbol of Putin's complete lack of humanity and caring even for his own soldiers. And, and of course, we're seeing that play out with, with heinous crimes against Innocence, children, women, a strategy of attacking civilians. This is, this is all part of a mindset and a culture of totalitarianism that simply does not value human life, even their own lives. Tell us what, what horrors are, are being experienced, what your sentiments are, what people are thinking about horrors in Bucha and, and in other places. You're absolutely correct to describing all those as horrors, and they are truly terrifying. And, you know, the scary part is that it's part of the history. It's something that probably the world chose to ignore for years, but we have been living next to this totalitarian state for three centuries. We have been suffering from Russia for three centuries. They were forbidding our language. They were destroying Ukrainian intellectuals. They were closing down Ukrainian schools. They killed 10 million people in 32, 33 with the great famine called Holodomor here. Uh, they have been doing that. So it, I, I wouldn't say that we are not shocked, but I would say that we are not surprised because we have to admit that Russian society is very different from Ukrainian society and from the American society and from any other Western society. And, and again, Ukrainian society is not perfect itself. We have been a Soviet state for a very long period of time. We do have our, you know, complications and all of that, but we still value humans' lives. And I can tell you for sure from talking to so many military, I know of operations that I cannot be talking about publicly, where Ukrainian soldiers went to great danger to retrieve the bodies of their fallen fellow military men and women just because they believe in the principle no man left behind. That is something I believe both you and we understand similarly. Russians were not taking care of their dead. They were not even taking care of their wounded. I talked to my dad and he, it's a complicated story, he talked to, to his friend who lived in the village near Kiev that was under Russian occupation. And he said that the most terrifying thing for him was this, when he witnessed that the Russian soldiers were digging holes and they were placing their dead ones together with heavily wounded. And they didn't care for the heavily wounded being still alive. They just put them there into those holes and they just left. So it's not just about Putin. It's just about, you know, this whole society, the Russian society. It's just not based on the, on the idea of respecting human lives. And that is why it is so scary. Because it's, again, it's not just Putin. It's, it's a very big mistake to believe that Putin made them do that. Not a single dictator will make a, an individual soldier go and rape an 11-year-old boy and make his mother, mother watch. You have to be completely sick to be doing that. You know, this is like this story is breaking my heart most of all about this 11-year-old boy raped in front of uh, his mom. Like, would, did Putin give a direct order? Did he threaten his family? Like, if he doesn't do that? No, it's just, it's just you have to realize this is part of their culture and has always been. You know, they have been 
pretending that they have this high culture, you know, Dostoevsky, Russian ballet and all of that. But this is who they are. Mm. Those are the soldiers who come and rape women, who come and rape children, who kill whoever they want to kill. And, uh, and they are happy about it. One 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 of the most terrifying parts of this story, except you know, rape is is the worst, of course. But uh, I was amazed to learn, and I, the whole society was amazed. I was amazed here that Russian soldiers were looting the houses of Ukrainians. They were stealing stuff from the houses of the Ukrainians, and then they were sending that back home. So there were lines in the post offices in Belarus with them sending like washing machines, uh, electric kettles, clothing jewelry to their wives back home and we have also ukrainian intelligence have intercepted many phone calls of the russian soldiers to their wives and their wives saying like oh great also make sure you bring the clothes of the right size my size is you know this is what you have to remember this is a you're right it's a power you, you what you've just said is very powerful on a couple of levels and it's a totally corrupt morally bankrupt society um, and I, I, I want to say to our listeners our, our, around the world, but here in America, if you think that this only happens 5,000 miles away, if you think this is somehow unique to, to Russia, please understand that this is, this is part of a totalitarian mindset, a mindset that does not understand that human life is sacred, and it can happen elsewhere. It has happened elsewhere. And, and if you think that America's not capable of it, I, I would ask you to think deeply about glimpses of authoritarianism and totalitarianism that we get from certain segments of our of our society right now. And in a um, you know, one of the one of the observations I've had here domestically in the United States is we we have been so divided politically, harshly divided, uh, violence occurring. Obviously, the famous uh, event on January sixth at our U.S. Capitol to try to try to change the election results. But one thing that's happened is, for the most part, there now there are still people on on the far right fringes who seem to support Putin. But for the most part, I can see parties coming together here in the United States to support Ukraine and the people of Ukraine, and for that. I have to be uh, at least thankful that that's happening here. But but that resilience of the Ukrainian people is has so impacted us. Tell us about where that comes from. Tell because I, there have been times in the past couple of years here where I've wondered whether Americans were capable anymore of such resilience and fight that you are demonstrating. T tell us where that comes from. It's a great question that I'm not sure I'm able to answer 100% correctly but I will make my, my guess. I think the major reason for this uh, resilience just comes from the level of threat that we're dealing with. Because what we're dealing with right now is an existential threat. I mean, it's the, the, the threat to our existence, literally. Like, like to our individual existence, to us as individuals, right? So when Russian army was, was over here, like it was literally 20 minutes drive from my home. So that was like literally danger to my existence. But it's also a danger to existence of us as, as a society. And when everyone sees that, and when the situation is so black and white, you just understand that you have to fight. You don't really have a choice. Like, look, people in Kherson, a southern city, a regional center, which has been captured by Russians the first day of the invasion. It's a city of about two to 300,000 people. The majority, absolute majority of them are speaking Russian. They have been going to the streets to protest with Russian tanks pointed at them, with Russian soldiers regularly opening fire on them, they still go to the streets to protest. I'm looking at those people and I'm thinking, how is that possible? How is that my country? Because Ukraine has been divided through many you know, uh, lines itself. We are not a perfect society. It's not like we didn't have our problems. Uh, we do have our difficulties. Well, lots of them, just like you do, like any society does. But I think when people are just dealing with this existential threat, when they realize that their whole existence, uh, the way they used to live is, is under threat, uh, that is where they understand that they have to fight. There is no other yeah. way. There is just yeah. no other way for, to save our way of being. I agree. I, I agree. It is an existential threat. And, and, and kudos to the Ukrainian people for seeing that 
for what it is, because sometimes in the United States, we, we need a slap upside the head to understand what an existential threat looks like. And I, I hope we're able to see that when it comes. Sometimes it has to be external for us to see it. And you know, it's, it's just a short quote. Uh, my like, Whenever I come from the parliament and I'm telling my boyfriend, like, oh, we had this, this uh, fight and so on and so forth. And he's like, yeah, you know what? This all is uh, like all those internal fighting. They will last up until the first bombs explode over Kiev. He was saying that like for a year, That's literally. Right. Then the first right. bombs explode over Kiev. And like all political infightings don't matter anymore. Everyone is just staying right. united to stop bombs from, from exploding over Kiev. Yeah. Every, everything yeah. pales in comparison when you're trying yeah. to survive. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, trying to survive in external threats, what do you say about the kind of programming that Vladimir Putin is doing to Russian brains right now and his soldiers, telling them that they, they are denazifying no. Ukraine, that they're they're killing Nazis. What? Where does that come from? You know, in in many conspiracy theories and in and in many pieces of propaganda, there's a kernel of truth somewhere inside there. Where, where does that come from? And what's the what's the real ground truth in Ukraine? Well, trying to find the, the you know the the kernel of truth that it's all based on is probably very difficult because Putin can just lie for the sake of lying. We all understand that, but as I was saying, this this complications and relations between Ukraine and Russia have been ongoing for centuries. With Russians claiming that, um, so, so a short look at the history, Ukraine most of Ukraine became part of the Soviet Union, like up to all the events in nineteen seventeen. But Western Ukraine was part of, uh, well, partially Poland, then, you know, Austro-Hungarians, then Poland, all of those territories. And Western Ukraine only joined Soviet Union in 1939, at the beginning of the, of the uh, World War II. And, well, in the rest of Ukraine, people got used to the Soviet Union. The Western parts of Ukraine uh, have not been accepting the Soviet rule. And they started the fight against both the Soviets and the Nazi at the same time with what was called a Ukrainian pan, uh, not sure uh, what the, the translation is, Ukrainian uh, like uh, rebels uh, army. Yeah. And they were fighting okay. against both Soviets and the Nazi at the same time, mainly in the Western Ukraine. And the Soviet um, historical narrative always claimed that those people have been collaborators of the Nazis, which made no sense because they were fighting against you know, Nazis as much as against the Soviets. It's just the very fact that they were fighting against Soviets that became the basis. This is, I think this is where it all comes from because there were people, particularly in the Western Ukraine, who were fighting against Soviets during the World War II and they started calling them Nazi. And actually today in the morning, uh, I read um, uh, some piece of news that the Russian Museum of uh, Second World War, I think, opened an exhibition on the roots of the Ukrainian Nazism. And they actually refer to the period in, in the Second World War, and they refer to those uh, Ukrainians fighting against the Soviets in that time. Yeah, they're literally rewriting history. Oh, so um, much. Which, which of course they've done. Be, they, they've done before. They've done before. Yeah, um, and then similarly, in a, the the notion that there are considerable people within Ukraine that are okay with, uh, at least in certain provinces, perhaps with Russia coming in, and that this gets to the question, the larger question of of resolution of this conflict, and some suggesting that hey, in order to save lives. Ukraine's going to have to concede um, the Russian-leaning uh, territories, and and this will all be fine if that happens. What tell tell us your thoughts on that? Well, my first uh, answer to that question is: Would you give up Alaska to Russia if they start bombing, uh, you know, Austin and then New York? Right? That's just not a fair question to ask because that's not just the violation of the Ukraine sovereignty. That is what they're doing now is the violation of the very principle of sovereignty that the whole international relations is based upon, right? If we do not respect the principle of sovereignty for individual state, then we do not respect it for, for any other state. Um, that is why it's, it's important to protect the, the very principle that, that, we, that the whole international community is built upon. Second, let's look at the people who are in those Eastern regions. Like, as I was saying, I was born and raised in Kharkiv. 
And the majority of people that I know from Kharkiv are Russian speakers. With the beginning of the full-scale invasion, the majority of those people got stuck in the bunkers, in the you know bomb shelters. They were texting me saying similar messages. Ina, please tell anyone who's willing to listen that we are a Ukrainian city and we want to stay Ukrainian. The majority of those messages were actually written in Russian, but that was their message. So you shouldn't confuse the language people are speaking and their national and, and you know political identity. It's like, let's say, with, with the French-speaking Canadians. You wouldn't call them French, right? They're Canadians. They just speak, speak a different language. That is what you should understand. Like people in the South, they start protesting against Russian rule there, and they mainly speak Russian. People on, in Donbass, where the major battle is, is uh, launching as, as we speak right now, they are all trying to flee the region, and they are not fleeing to Russia. They're all trying to escape to the territories under full control of the Ukrainian government. Mm. That is mm. them voting by their feet. They're trying to escape into the territories where they belong. And that is in, in central, in western, in northern Ukraine. So, so when anyone says, like, maybe you should give up those territories, well, there are people over there and they choose to be Ukrainians. They chose in a very hard battle uh, to be part of the Ukrainian state. We cannot simply give them up just because Putin says that, uh, you know, I think they might want to join Russia. Well, they don't. Like, they all are now feeling Ukrainian as they have never before. Like, 98% of Ukrainians today say that Russia is our enemy and we want to have nothing to do with them. 98%. Ukrainians have never been as united on any issue as they are on this issue right now. And I know people who have been rather like leaning to the idea of let's be friendly with Russians. But the first week of the war, they joined the army or the territorial defense to fight against Russians. You know, what an important message and reminder to all of us. I, we, we needed to hear that. And the examples you gave uh, regarding uh, French-speaking Canada and even Alaska, I think, help Americans get their head around this. As someone who, who spent 25 years in the FBI and, and then ultimately headed up count foreign counterintelligence for the FBI. I can, I can assure our listeners that for my entire career, I've understood that we have enemies in the world. We have adversaries in the world who get up every day wanting to destroy democracy and want to hurt us. Um, so the notion, the notion that we should somehow give Putin a, a rationale, a face-saving gesture, give him a yeah. province or two, and so he can declare a victory and go away. He he will not go away. This adversary does not go away. And sadly, there there are horrible losses of life occurring, but there's nothing short of a complete resounding defeat of Putin that's going to stop him from advancing into other countries. I mean, you now have Finland and Sweden seriously yeah. discussing NATO membership. I mean, this tells you they see the threat for what it is, and it doesn't stop with Ukraine. Truly. And you also have to remember that we are not the first victim of Putin's ambitions and his delusions, because first he went into Georgia in 2008. He took part of Georgia. Georgia has its own problems right now. Uh, from the early 90s, they have grabbed, the Russians have grabbed part of Moldova, which is close, you know, we are bordering this this undecided area of, of Transnistria. Uh, he has been going into other territories in Syria. Like whenever he hears that the West would not interfere, that the West would keep on saying that we don't want to escalate, for him, that is a clear sign. He can go further. That is how he reads it. That is why I believe that if the West reacted properly and introduced the sanctions that we are seeing today in 2014, when he annexed Crimea and started the war in Donbass, we wouldn't have had this full-scale invasion today if the West reacted properly, not even with you know military support to Ukraine, but simply introducing real sanctions, not the sanctions that, that were introduced in 2014, which were, well, a joke, let's be honest about that. So he needs Indeed. to be stopped because he doesn't understand like uh, those half measures. He doesn't. He never. He never did, and he never would. Under underst understood. An, an important takeaway from this conversation, which I, I want to close by asking you one last question, which is, what can we do? What what can Americans do to support Ukraine? Give us some ideas, some things that you know. For many of us sitting watching our television screens, we we want to do something. What what do you suggest? Well, 
fighter jets, air defense system, long-range missiles, anti-tanks, uh, uh, armored vehicles. I know the list yeah. by heart because yeah. those yeah. are the things that we truly need. And I know there are many people who are saying, oh, we are pacifists. We don't want to contribute to the military effort. Well, this is not military effort. This is life-saving efforts. This is the humanitarian cause that we are asking you to contribute. So if you are listening to this and and you feel injustice that is being done to Ukraine right now, there is actually something you can do is call your representative and ask her or him uh, to support further provision of weapons to Ukraine. Again, I don't mean to sound ungrateful. We have been getting support from the United States as well, as well as from other countries. A little bit too, you know, not on the time that we expected that to come. We wish it came earlier, but uh, we need more, unfortunately. And we shall be able to fight and we shall be able to defeat Putin. I'm sure of that Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. But we just need a little bit of support from you. Not troops on the ground. Don't let you get fooled by, by people saying that uh, we want to involve uh, you know, NATO into this war. We are willing to fight ourselves, but we just need uh, some support because this is, after all, not just Ukraine's fight against Putin. This is a democracy fight against Putin. So please do help us with that. Let me, let me throw my agreement behind what Ines Osen has just uh, suggested, and that is that we all commit to calling our representatives' offices, writing, they track those calls. Um, you've done it before. You've called before on other issues, but this one—they are seeking guidance from the American people. They are—they are trying to see which way the wind is blowing with regard to American sentiment. We can make a difference there, and the, and the continued supply of much-needed munitions, particularly long-range uh, weaponry, is uh, essential right now. And, and the Ukrainians have demonstrated they—they they can do it. They—they they can do it. We just have to keep them supplied. In Asosin, I am so grateful that we could make this happen, that you could join us. Um, I, I join my listeners in saying that I pray for your health and safety, uh, your families, and those of the Ukrainian people as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for being a part of this powerful discussion with Inna Sosin, a member of Ukraine's parliament. Let's take action on Inna's suggestion and contact our elected representatives to ask that they support Ukraine's fight for freedom to the fullest possible extent. Join me next time as we dive into the dark history of a sex trafficking operation that few have spoken of until now, here on The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.